0: I've been an avid reader ever since elementary school. I've read a lot of books. and I've read a lot of books more than once. But back in 1998, I did something with a book that I had never done before and never done since. I read this book to the end, and as soon as I was done with it, I turned back to page one and started over again. I thought it was that important. It was a book written by a philosopher at the University of Southern California who also happened to be an ordained minister. His name was Dallas Willard. The book was *The Divine Conspiracy. To say that that book affected me deeply would be like saying that Western New Yorkers seem to be fond of chicken wings. (laughs) It's a real understatement. The book opens with these words. Recently, a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is enough of that. But most of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at high speed and often with no clue to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. The Bible says that Jesus came among us to model and to teach us the life for which we were made. But that kind of life does not come easily in any sense of the word. It's almost akin to learning to fly. It's not instinctive to us in our natural state. It involves a radical kind of transformation we typically call conversion. And then conversion is followed by a lifetime of learning how to fly right side up. Living in harmony with this deeper reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. One reason why this invitation to learn how to fly right side up seems so difficult to us is that Jesus revealed the starkly different character of his kingdom in words that the average person on the street views as impractical or unrealistic or even downright crazy. For example, Jesus said, "Love your enemies." Who does that? Or if someone strikes you on the cheek, don't hit don't hit back. Turn the other cheek also. Honestly, the meek shall inherit the earth. (laughs) Say what? Well, right here in Luke 14, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus might as well be saying up is down and down is up. Come to think of it, that's exactly what he is saying. If you really want to learn to fly right side up, you need to descend your way into greatness. It's enough to take your breath away. And it's not something that comes to us naturally. I mean, who really wants to humble themselves? Back when Leonard Bernstein was conducting the New York Philharmonic, someone asked him if it was hard to find a first violinist. And he said, no, not at all. I'll get dozens of applications. What I can't find are second violinists. Are we really surprised that no one wants to play second fiddle? Our text in Luke's 14 is, I think, a subtle illustration of what Jesus means when he counsels us to refrain from the pursuit of self-exaltation and instead willingly play second fiddle. It all begins with Jesus getting invited to dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. But right from the beginning, something is up. Luke says that Jesus was being carefully watched. The Pharisees, the scrupulously religious conservatives of that day, were very suspicious of Jesus. They were always looking for evidence they could use against him. That's why some scholars suggest that the presence of this sick man is no coincidence. He may well have been a plant, a setup. They wanted to see if they could entrap Jesus by getting him to do something which, in their view, would break the Sabbath. But Jesus sees the trap for what it is, and he poses a question to these men, who are ostensibly the spiritual leaders of Israel. Is it lawful, he said, to heal on the Sabbath? Now, clearly, they didn't think so. Otherwise, their trap has no point to it. But not one person answered. So Jesus heals the man and he poses a follow-up question. He said, if a child or, or say an ox falls into a well on the Sabbath, won't you pull it out? And clearly they would do so. But again, no one answers. From the spiritual leaders, Crickets. Now, it's not like they don't know the right answer to Jesus' question. You don't have to drink smart water to figure out that the Sabbath is largely aimed at human wholeness. So, how in the name of Moses could you decide that making another human being whole on that sacred day would be anything other than a validation of it and not a sin? But these guests of this prominent Pharisee are not focused on a man in great need. Instead, they are focused on an opportunity to undercut and accuse someone who threatened their standing as religious leaders. They're much more concerned with looking righteous in each other's eyes. And so a no-brainer question gets stonewalled. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have bid that group of self-righteous hypocrites a hurried farewell and left to find other, more enjoyable dinner company. But Jesus doesn't do that. Rather, in the aftermath of this healing, he turns the tables on them. Whereas our text began with Jesus being carefully watched in verse 7, we're told that Jesus notices something. The watchers have become the (laughs) watchees. Jesus notices how carefully the dinner guests choose their seats, eagerly grabbing the more honorable places at the table. Jesus says that such practice is short-sighted and it is fraught with risk. Much like today, the most important guests at events like this tend to arrive late. So Jesus says aggressively seeking prestige ultimately produces shame. A wiser approach, he says, is taking the lower seat, which is more likely to result in greater honor. Because if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Jesus then turns to his host and says, what about you? Look who you've invited to dinner. You've invited people who you can put into your debt. And social custom dictates that they will need to reciprocate in the future. Instead of inviting all the movers and shakers in town to secure your reputation as a pillar of society, you should invite people who couldn't possibly repay the favor. Invite the poor. The crippled, the lame, the blind. You know, all of those conspicuously excluded from your social circle. Are you kidding me? Inviting the nerds, the freaks, the social untouchables to your dinner parties is the key to long-term success and well-being? Apparently so in the kingdom of God. Jesus says there's no generosity in giving to those who can repay. And so here it is. As as much as it goes against the grain, humility is to be the hallmark of the followers of Jesus. Don't seek the prestigious front seats of honor but seek out the less conspicuous seats. In fact, do not only be humble, but give to the humble without hope of repayment. Be generous without expecting to be paid back, because true humility expresses itself in ignoring questions of class or rank. Now, I don't need to tell you that this flies full speed into the face of, Of what we typically see in our culture. Human beings tend to be hospitable mostly to our friends or relatives, but Jesus opens up the community of relationships here so that no boundaries of class or rank exist. The best hospitality, he says, is given, it is not transacted, it is not exchanged. To invite those who cannot repay is clearly not the cultural norm, and there will be no return invitation forthcoming. But Jesus says that there will be a day when all of these accounts will be settled and everything will be put right. So we are to invite them and leave the question of recompense to God. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus is trying to teach us how to fly right side up. And and this text underscores that getting our egos, our pride, our our self-conceptions under control is foundational to the entire process. But it's not easily done, particularly in our current culture of the self. How do we possibly live humbly in a world that is breathlessly trying to keep up with the Kardashians? How do we manage our egos in a culture where self reigns, where you can literally be famous for being famous? Ironically, nothing so clearly illustrates our culture's preoccupation with self as does the phenomenon of selfies. You notice, everywhere you go, and I mean everywhere, everywhere. People snapping photos of themselves. To what end? I can't begin to guess. And as these self-snapped photos have increased in popularity, so has the pressure to capture a death-defying picture that can take the internet by storm. Apparently going viral is the, the today's equivalent to winning the lottery. That's what has birthed the kilfi. A kill fee is a selfie you take in a risky or astonishing position at a dangerous location. Sadly, this trend has led to a rise in actual selfie deaths. A study done in 2018 showed that over 300 people had died trying to take selfies in the past five years. You see the irony? People dying trying to get fame from a selfie. It's a cautionary tale that brings into sharp focus the dangers with being overly consumed with the self. These Pharisees want the best seats at the table precisely because everyone else wants them as well. They, they, they want them because they believe that securing a place of prestige is vital to their happiness and well-being. And so they offer hospitality to all of the A-listers so that they will be socially esteemed. And remember that these men are the spiritual leaders. They are the models who will teach the rank and file how to live out their faith. But as Jesus warns, these efforts often blow up on our faces. And it is such misdirected desires for self-exaltation that produce so much of the tension and the heartache and even the violence in our world today. And so Jesus says, don't fall for it. Don't become a prisoner to your self-image. It's as dangerous as flying upside down. Some years ago, there was a man who worked here at the college in the Office of Student Life. He had a Ph.D. in higher education from William and Mary. But he began to sense a call to ministry, and so he resigned, and he moved his family to Los Angeles, where he could pursue that calling. To provide for his family, he applied for a position as a resident director at a local Christian college. I happen to be one of his references. The college calls me up, and after sort of him hauling around for a second, they cut to the chase and said, what's wrong with this guy? I said, what do you mean? They said, he's got a PhD, and he wants to be an R.D. in a dorm. You know, sometimes even Christians can't deal with someone deliberately going the other direction. Has to be something wrong with him. Don't ever think that learning to fly right side up comes easily, or that it's even understood. This text in Luke 14 is the lectionary reading for the first Sunday of September, and I think it is especially appropriate for the start of a new school year. What kind of year could we have if we actually took Jesus seriously regarding humility? Humility. What if we deliberately chose to turn the social tradition on its head and stop using other people to advance ourselves and instead hang out with those who have no ability to push us further up the social ladder? You know, that sign across the street says that Houghton is a Christian college of the liberal arts and sciences. I take that to mean that this is a flight academy where we're learning to fly, right side up, properly aligned with reality the way things truly are. But don't ever get the, um, the illusion that simply being in this kind of environment makes all that automatic, because nothing could be further from the truth. Like any institutional environment, Houghton is subject to a pecking order, what letters are behind your name? What titles on your office door? And so on. In terms of our spiritual formation, you need to know that there are certain aspects of higher education that can turn into a no holds barred shark tank. But it doesn't have to be. Happily, there are a lot of people in this community that, who take Jesus very seriously some of them don't have titles some of them don't have any letters behind their names some of them don't have offices but what they do have is advanced instrument training and in how to fly and you need to find those kind of models and imitate them so that you too as isaiah put it you can mount up with wings like eagles it's 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 hard to overestimate the importance of proper models Because human beings are by far the species most adept at imitation. It comes as naturally to us as breathing. So the question isn't whether or not you will imitate. The question is what or who you will imitate. I think this is why Jesus is so concerned here. The Pharisees are generally considered top drawer in terms of faithful living. But what they're modeling here in Luke 14 amounts to flying upside down. My life as a grandparent has me thinking a lot about models. Let me introduce you to one of my grandsons. He's proudly Canadian. Despite his blatant ethnocentrism, He's basically a shy, sensitive little boy who, at four years, old, four years old when this was taken, he loved Paw Patrol and Daniel Tiger and Legos and hockey. I mean, he is Canadian. He's been raised very carefully, very intentionally. He's never been exposed to much TV at all. He's basically a vegetarian. If I want to get a rise out of his parents, I'd say I'm taking him to McDonald's for a Happy Meal and then home to watch the Three Stooges. (laughs) But you know, over the last year, he's changed. He started preschool last fall. And suddenly he's obsessed with Batman and the Hulk, Ninja Turtles, And hockey, I mean, he is Canadian. So here he is now. Zucchini man. I mean, if bats can have superheroes, why not vegetables? Or you you didn't know the Batmobile had draining wheels on it, did you? I I tried to Skype with him a, a while back and I couldn't talk to him. I had to talk to Donatello. What happened? In one word, recess. (laughs) What did Amos see? He saw the big boys. Actually, when you're pre-K, he saw the bigger boys. He saw the alpha dogs. And who doesn't want to be an alpha dog? So you imitate them. You adopt their ways. You follow their lead because you want to be part of that crowd. As Peter Drucker put it so correctly, culture swallows ideology whole. No kid is born with an innate desire for capes, masks, and superhero figures. That desire is created by external forces, primarily peer pressure. And... Even though it's often harmless with four-year-olds, their parents' concern notwithstanding, it's another thing entirely when we fall into imitating the self-exalting ways of the pecking order. Fiercely competing with others for our places of prestige and, and crawling over others, literally at times, to secure it. I think that it's this critical nature of models that lies behind the most fundamental command of Jesus follow me. It occurs to me that you can take all of these crazy sayings of Jesus and reduce them down to be like me, I'm the model. For the past two years, I've been telling anyone who will listen that the biggest problem in the church today is with people who believe in Jesus, but they don't actually believe Jesus. They believe that he died for their sins so they can go to heaven someday, whatever they mean by that. But they don't actually buy what he's trying to teach them about life right here and right now. But you see, the essence of discipleship is imitating the master. One of the students in my class at Northeastern Seminary put this on his Facebook page a few weeks ago. It may be a little bit over the top, but not by much. And at the end of the day, what makes all of these outrageous statements of Jesus at all plausible is that there's a community of people who actually incarnate them, who imitate him in front of a skeptical and incredulous world. And it seems to me that that's basically our mission in the world, to imitate the model of our Lord and Savior. It's not easy, especially with so many around you flying so haphazardly and dangerously, unaware or even unconcerned that they may be upside down. And perhaps even you yourself remain skeptical about learning to fly right side up. I mean, in a world obsessed with always going up, it can be a daunting thing to deliberately choose to descend to choose humility. And maybe you're saying, does that really work? Jesus, our model, chose it. And it had cosmic consequences. Likely before any of the four Gospels were in written form. Scholars tell us that first century Christians We're singing a hymn that is referenced in Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus foregoing all of his prerogatives and instead choosing the humble way of a servant. If ever anyone had a right to the best seat at the table, it was the Son of God but he willingly went down so that all of us could go up. How'd that work out for him? Paul says God has highly exalted him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. No, learning to fly does not come easily. But we have the ultimate model whose life and teachings will enable us to safely navigate the course of our lives, bringing us ultimately into the Father's house where all the seats at the table are equally exalted and reserved for those he claims as his children. Let's pray. God, you have called us to a life of humble service and that rubs against the grain of our culture in so many ways But help us to have the faith and the courage to look at our model, Jesus Christ, and help us to incarnate those values into our own lives so that people can tell that we have walked with him and we'll pray this praise you for this in the name of christ our lord amen